This is Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave on February 20th, 2017 at the Insight Meditation South Bay Sangha. The topic of the talk is how to apply the Dharma in difficult relationships. A timely and very practical topic since most of us have at least one difficult relationship in our personal life and right now in the United States, many individuals are experiencing the effects of difficult relationship with what is happening politically in our country. So I hope you enjoy this talk. How many of you were here last week? I was here too, and I did notice that there was a little bit of um, a little pushback toward the end with Ron with some of the things he said. Yeah, there's a little laughing over there. So I thought that I would begin my talk tonight by just making a bridge here. You all know I'm going to be discussing Dharma in difficult relationships. How many of you came to hear how to deal with your difficult relationships tonight? Yeah, me too. I came here to hear that too. Of course, we all have them. Yes. and. Lucky for us practitioners, we actually have somebody in the White House who we get to practice Dharma in difficult relationships with almost all day long. It's quite remarkable. So last week, Ron talked about the four gateways of selfing. And he did get to a point, you know, he, he did the great, uh, wonderful Buddhist technique, um, very particularly loved in the Zen tradition and the Mahamudra tradition, he asked a lot of questions and tried to confuse everybody. And everyone's very upset because he didn't give any answers. But I do want to say that where he ended up was somewhere I'm going to begin, which actually I'm beginning at the ending of my talk. He was essentially saying that it doesn't matter what activity we do, what thought we have, it's all based in this innate distortion of self-reification. And you know he's right. <clears throat> and that is a frame we're going to work with tonight, but we're going to work with it in a kind of different way, okay? But I wanted to start with a quote because we are talking about different, difficult relationship, which means we're talking about relationship, which means we're talking about love. Love. Okay, so here's a quote from Anam Tupton. The very basis of our consciousness is sacred perception or crazy love. This sense of sacredness is simply love without discrimination, complete egoless love. This utter love goes beyond any form of attachment. When we know how to enter the realm of sacred perception, true transcendence is realized right here and now. Even the I, quote unquote, who is trying to transcend dissolves. Yeah, so that's the end of my talk. 
And this is the bridge between what Ron was trying to do last week. He was trying to go there, but of course, you can't really go there with the four gateways because the four gateways are supposed to wake you up to how screwed up your cognition is. And he did a great job of that, don't you think? He really did. But that's not where we are tonight. Tonight, we are in the world of relating. As delineated last week, According to Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy, the primary obstacle to sacred perception is what is known as innate reification. And this is a term that came from Jay Tsongkhapa, who is well, this absolutely incredible uh, Tibetan scholar and teacher in the Galupa tradition. And he said, and the historical Buddha pointed to innate reification. He just didn't use this term for it. But what innate reification is, is it's the deeply embedded cognitive reflex of viewing self and world as permanent, independent, and substantially existent. So hopefully all of you Theravadan practitioners should be on the same page with me, yes? Yes? You all know what territory I'm in, yeah? Well, guess what? If we had a room full of Tibetan Buddhist practitioners, they'd all be on the same page with us, too. And if we had a room of Zen practitioners, they would all be on the same page. This is the basic Buddhist teachings that is true in every single school of Buddhism. And it never veers from this. So innate reification, in turn, gives rise to the kleshas. Now, klesha is a word that is translated best for us modern Western people with a psychological tradition as cognitive, affective, afflictive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. That's what the kleshas are. Any thoughts, feelings, or behaviors that cause us mental, emotional affliction. And because we're relational and tribal animals, biologically, that means it's causing everybody else the same suffering. Okay? So the suffering we have inside gets expressed outside, and that's why we have a quote-unquote world of suffering. So therefore, relationships are wonderful containers for waking up. Why? Because they catalyze tanha. Now, tanha is a very interesting term. So tanha is the basis of all the kleshas. And it is translated as craving and aversion or hope and fear, depending on what Buddhist tradition you're in. Theravadins say craving and aversion. And the uh, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and some of the, I would, yeah, I would say the emptiness guys, you know, even Nagarjuna, they basically used hope and fear. So the same thing. And when I wrote this book, one of the things I did was I interviewed a lot of my favorite neuroscientists and favorite Buddhist teachers, and Stephen Batchelor was one of them. And I asked him about Tanha, and um, there's a whole long paragraph in here about what he said, but what he did say, he defined it for me. He said, well, and you know Stephen is a fantastic translator, both in Sanskrit and Pali. And so he said, well, tanha is a desire that doesn't work. It's a gratification or a solution that is bound to fail because of tanha's cognitive distortions. 
So as Ajahn Sumedho used to say to all of us when he was teaching years ago, desire is not the problem. Get to know desire, it's not the problem. The problem is the cognitive distortions that we actually bring to desire. And that's tanha. So difficult relationships are rich soil for tanha, craving and aversion, hope and fear. I'm going to read you a little bit out of my textbook on hatred and aversion so that we're all on the same page around hatred and aversion because difficult relationships, honestly, they bring up a lot of aversion, right? Yes? Who hasn't experienced aversion with a difficult relationship, even with the good relationships? But let me remind you, tanha is craving and aversion, hope and fear. So even the world's greatest relationship, trust me, is full of tanha because you want more, or you're worried you're going to lose it. So tanha will show up even in what you think is not a difficult relationship. Hatred is the far enemy of metta. Attachment is the near enemy. Loving kindness, I love you so much. Oh, I love you so much. Now I need you. Attachment. The far enemy is hatred. It's the opposite. So the Buddha said, one whose mind all day and night takes delight in harmlessness, who has loving kindness for all beings, for them there is enmity with none. So that was the Buddha's idea of loving kindness. Harmlessness with everyone, everyone, all beings, he says. Loving kindness for all beings and enmity not arising within the mind or heart. Kind of a tall order, don't you think? I think it's best to go right to the root cause of enmity, and I'm going to let Shantideva, a renowned 8th century Indian Buddhist monk, tell us about the root of enmity. He says, the fuel of discontent is clinging, and finding its fuel in discontent Origination from an undesired event and from an impediment to desired events, anger becomes inflamed and destroys me. Therefore, I shall remove the fuel of that enemy, for that foe has no function other than to harm me. So what Shantideva is saying here, when I have enmity, I should recognize that anger is arising because there is something unsatisfactory about the conditions that I am experiencing right now. But that anger is my foe, and all it is doing is harming me. So I should pay attention and give up the idea of having anger. Yeah, now modern Buddhists have a lot of trouble with this, right? Who's having trouble with what I just said? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah. Anybody want to share why they're having trouble with this? Righteous anger. Righteousness. We're going to go to righteousness, yes. What else? Anybody else? Natural response to injustice. Exactly. How in the world do you fight injustice if you're not angry about it? Anybody else? <laughs> okay, I could just say ditto to what everybody else just said. It's very common. That's right. This is a, this is a natural response. Yes? Just a question. Did you say dissatisfaction before? Unsatisfactoriness. Unsatisfactoriness. Yes. Um, that being okay. 
Unsatis- we don't have a choice about unsatisfactoriness. That is a part of every single human experience. There is no experience that does not have some quality of unsatisfactoriness, according to Buddhist philosophy. What was your question? So, uh, that's all right. We're getting rid of anger, or we're striving not to inflame anger. Yes. But that unsatisfactoriness, or uh, that's okay. So this is a very brilliant question. Is this a question, or is this a statement? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was no, because <laughs> I, I'm actually asking. Yeah. It could be both, and still be amazing. Yes, of course. It's a question. So, um, no, how many, is there anyone in this room for whom unsatisfactoriness is okay? I didn't think so. Unsatisfactoriness is not okay with us for many reasons, which I will go into. In general, we have very specific ways of envisioning human life that are actually incorrect. And one of them is that life is not unsatisfactory. That there are things in life that are ultimately so incredibly satisfactory. That's a distortion. And that is the nature of tanha, craving and aversion. When we're in the midst of a satisfactory experience, for the most part, there is a large part of us that is not landing and resting in it. Most of our psyche is agitated and worried about it's going to end, how can I make it continue? Yeah, That's the unsatisfactoriness even of pleasurable experience. Mm. How's that sitting with you? Sitting well? Yes. I guess, so we haven't gotten to where we're going. No, we haven't, but that's okay. You can go there anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the concept of righteous yeah. anger, I don't understand. Um, I mean, I don't know where you're going to go with that, but I mean, if you call somebody a Nazi, it's still not okay to break their head. Actually, it's probably not okay to call them a Nazi either. And, and, and so, do you have to point at ignorant behavior by slandering someone? Right. And, and I, I get confused with that in the, in the sense of that I often hear where people confuse the messenger of the message. You know, like, okay, back to Nazis, Hitler. Uh, he was mm-hmm. probably the single biggest advocate for animal rights in 1935. He was a vegetarian. I get it. And a vegetarian. Yeah. But the thing is... So this is one of the things that human beings do with difficult relationships. It's okay, you know. You've superseded me, but it's okay. Difficult relationships are such beautiful ground for awakening because they require us to use the skill of wisdom and discernment. That is what the Buddhist path is about. It's about two things. Discernment and compassion. And Compassion does not mean that you like the person you're having compassion for. It means you are recognizing a very basic tenet of Buddhist philosophy. 
All harm is done because of suffering in the mind. Because that is a mind that is mistaking the nature of reality. It does not understand the way things are. Therefore, that mind is generating thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are ultimately harming to oneself and to others. So, all harm in the world arises from human suffering. I, too, am a being who has human suffering. Therefore, I can actually compassionately recognize that Hitler was a human being who was deeply suffering and visited unbelievable amounts of suffering upon other human beings. But it doesn't mean I have to hate him, does it? Do I have to hate him to discern that his actions were aberrant? No. Exactly. Help you. Yeah, I hate him. <laughs> Why should I generate hatred in my heart for a human being who has so deeply suffered and killed many of my relatives? Why? When I was seven and I would go to Hebrew school, the rabbi was an old guy and clearly very traumatized by the Holocaust. And I'm, I'm going to be 59, okay? So we're talking the early 60s, well, mid-60s, mid okay? At Hebrew school, he would put us in a room and show us movies of the Holocaust. And it wasn't Schindler's List. I mean, it was the movies of the cars with the bones and the, okay? Did I need to see that? And he would stand in the back of the room and say, never forget, this could be you. And I'm sitting here as a Buddhist teacher saying to you, there is no reason for me to generate hatred. Is this making sense to you with your question? Are you sure? Let's read about compassion for difficult people since I think our lovely guest here got us there, right? This is an entire section in my book, by the way, <laughs> of compassion for difficult people. So I'm going to start here with a quote from Joan Halifax. Many of you may know Roshi Joan, incredible Zen Buddhist teacher, and uh, probably, I would say, the person who really started engaged with Buddhism. She says, Compassion has many faces. Some of them are fierce. Some of them are wrathful. Some of them are tender. Some of them are wise. The true benefit of compassion for a difficult person is cultivating compassion for people in our private, professional, and public lives we don't like, we don't understand, or have caused us harm. Abusive family members or intimate partners, close friends that turn on us, bosses or coworkers who take credit for our work or demonstrate little appreciation, these are the ones who show us the healing power of compassionate recognition. Compassion is the supreme vehicle of non-hatred. The Buddha taught, hatred can never end hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. It can be quite challenging to feel non-hatred for people we find difficult. Compassion does not imply condoning or agreeing with an action. We can abhor an act and still actively, compassionately aim to end that suffering. Compassion meditation does not require forgiveness, 
nor is it even part of the practice. Yet many find forgiveness naturally arising from compassion meditation. Violence, jealousy, greed, hatred, abuse, manipulation, lies, theft, these are all manifestations of human suffering. Murder, war, rape, terrorist attacks, and torture arise from the depths of egoic delusion and extreme dukkha, which means unsatisfactoriness, by the way. That's the actual translation of dukkha, not suffering. Only the healing power of compassion and wisdom can rid our species of these horrific acts. And that's what we are here to discuss tonight, how to do this. And we are the only ones who can do this. And you can model this to the difficult people in your lives, but you have to know how to do it. Okay? So are we ready for how? There's four very important questions that I think we can all use. I have been using these for at least the last year, certainly the last month, to deal with what's been happening in our country. So the first question for dealing with difficult people is, can we seek charitable explanations for intentions and behaviors that make no sense to us? Okay, just hang out with that question for a minute. Can we seek charitable explanations for intentions and behaviors that make no sense to us? I'm not asking if we can find them. I'm asking if we can seek them. Okay? Can we discern what others we disagree with are actually trying to accomplish? This is very important. You know, we may actually have similar goals but we may have totally different paths, totally different means to getting there. Can we find a way to discern what they're trying to accomplish so we can figure out whether or not what they want to have happen has any merit for us or any merit in general? Can we suss out mutual needs and benefits in their goals? When you disagree with someone, when they're... When you're having difficulty with someone, can you find a way to see whether or not there are mutual benefits and goals that you might be able to achieve with them? And finally, can intimacy arise from seeking mutual benefit, growth, and harmony with individuals that hold divergent views? And I'm sure all of you are well aware that last one, we have to do that in order to save our country at this point. So those are the four questions for wise engagement. Now the how of it in Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology is always very practical. The Buddha was a really practical guy. That's why Dharma and daily life is so easy to teach, right? so much of the Buddhist teachings certainly the Theravada teachings are so practical and ethically based how many of you know the five precepts is there anyone who doesn't know what the five precepts are ah so we have a room full of Buddhist practitioners lovely 
You need a refresher. You're going to get a refresher right now. I just needed to know. I needed to actually not know. I needed to be reminded how knowledgeable you all are. That's why I love teaching in this sangha. So the first precept is the training in non-harming. And I have always said the first precept is pretty much if you only practice that, you would be practicing the most important thing in Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology. Because every single meditation practice, every single ethical concept, every single instruction is all in service to helping us practice non-harming. Non-harming, in terms of the Eightfold Path, is training in wise view and wise intention because actually, in order to not cause harm in the world, you have to be able to have wise view or right view. I personally don't like to use the word right in front of the Eightfold Path factors. It's In English, it just doesn't work. It's always right and wrong. So wise, to me, works better. It's a sense of awakening, of knowing. When you are training in non-harming, you are training in these qualities. And this is the practical aspect of Buddhism. Wakefulness, compassion, discerning, mindfulness, respectfulness, generosity, and tolerance. That's how we practically train in non-harming. In order to walk in the world without harming oneself and others, we must be able to be wakeful and discerning enough to know causes and conditions as they are, not with the innate distortion, with our classic vision, with our craving and aversion, our hope and fear. No, we have to be able to know things as they actually are and then be able to compassionately be present with all the crap that comes up inside of us around causes and conditions. That's why Trump is such a wonderful guru for all of us right now, right? Because there's so much about him that causes so much internal turmoil. And that doesn't mean that all of that internal turmoil is somehow distorted. A lot of it is actually very accurate. But the question is, when you're in difficult circumstances, when you're dealing with a difficult person, can you discern your own responses, your own reactivity, wisely enough that you're not going to visit that reactivity upon them? And you certainly are not going to allow them to unwisely harm you by visiting their reactivity upon you. So you have to be wakeful, and you have to be mindful and respectful, and you have to be tolerant enough of your own reactivity and their reactivity to go beyond reactivity. The way you go beyond reactivity is by resting in the experience that you're actually having internally and externally. Enough, long enough to have space to be able to let yourself understand what's actually going on. 
a lot of the difficult relationships people have are with the people they're most intimate with. Your parents, maybe your siblings, maybe your spouse, your kids. A lot of those relationships bring up a lot of difficulty. And in the best of worlds, love really is two people helping each other present the best version of themselves. And we all know that often love is about lots of other things for people. It's not about that. It's not selfless. It's very selfish. And selfishness always gives rise to the glaciers, to hope and fear, craving and aversion. In order to practice non-harming, I encourage people to do what I encouraged you to do at the beginning of the meditation practice, for those of you who were actually here, which was to recognize your human imperfection. It's an absolutely wonderful way to deal with difficult people. If you can actually, in a moment when you're facing someone difficult, if you can remind yourself about something difficult about you, now, it, you, your difficulty may not be nearly as difficult as theirs, but it allows you to recognize that you, too, are a human being who has difficulty. Now, often when people start comparing my difficulty to your difficulty, they end up in the territory of self-righteousness, <laughs> right? You know, Joseph Goldstein has a great quote. He says... The best thing, the most juicy thing, the most difficult thing to really kick the attachment habit of with anger is the sweet, awesome feeling of self-righteousness. Right? We love to be right. But as Ron said to you all last week, that's just more selfing. Is a difference between discerning right and wrong and being right, dropping in and holding to the identity of rightness. We are seeing in the White House how much havoc that costs, right? Attachment to self-righteous rightness without any kind of wisdom or discernment. That is a major cause of suffering. But it's even a cause of suffering if you're right. If you have the right position, but then you wield it like a sword to cut somebody down, that's not non-harming. That's attachment to the identity of the one who is right. That is selfing. That's innate reification. That's separating you from this other individual who is no different than you. They are a human being and you've lost your compassion, and you've lost your wisdom. So you have to recognize human imperfection, and then secondly, the other way to practice non-harming with wise view and wise intention is to recognize the inherent unsatisfactoriness of all experience, which we have discussed. Is there anybody who's still unclear about the inherent unsatisfactoriness of all experience? If you are, please say so. I will elaborate. Are you sure? You've got this. Yes? I wouldn't mind some elaboration. Okay. Everybody's really clear that difficult experience is unsatisfactory, right? That doesn't take any elaboration, does it? 
none of us like it, unless you're a sadist, right? And or you know, you're right. A masochist, yes, absolutely. It's pleasurable experience that people, they don't really understand. That's why in the West, people are so fixated on the science of happiness. Happiness is as unsatisfactory as every other human experience because we grasp at it, we cling to it as though I need to be happy in order to have a good life. I'm sorry, that's not Buddhism. Buddhism says wisdom, compassion, the capacity to discern, to rest in the innate clarity, the mind's luminosity, this is beyond happiness. And it's beyond pain. It has nothing to do with happiness and pain. Oh, yes, when you realize the nature of things, when you actually understand how things are, there is liberation, and liberation does have a feeling of openness to it. But it is not the pleasure, sensual pleasure of happiness. It is not. So if you think you're practicing Buddhism in order to be happier, you're not practicing Buddhism. You're practicing something else. Because Buddhism is about how to be wise and discerning to not harm yourself or others, to wake up to the nature of the way things are, the ultimate happiness. But that is not happiness, because all human experience is unsatisfactory. It just never measures up. It doesn't last. It's impermanent. It has no inherent existence. It never will. And as long as you are lost in that delusion, you will never wake up. The second precept is training in not taking what is not offered. This one is really difficult with difficult people. Sometimes difficult people are difficult because they're insisting on giving us things we don't need or want. Right? And we find that very difficult. Sometimes difficult people are difficult because we think we should be given things by them that they are not willing to give us. And that makes them difficult. So in Buddhism, the prescription for this, how to practice non-stealing, which is such a bad, bad translation, how to practice a sense of knowing what is, what can be offered, and not clinging to the idea that you should have more than what can be offered. Again, this is knowing things as they actually are, discernment. The best way to do that is what Sayadaw Upandita suggested. He said, in order to do this, you have to be practicing a kind of morality that's based on consideration for the feelings of all beings. So what that means is, 
you're being required to do something really hard. Here's somebody who's behaving in a way that is very distressful and difficult for you, and you're being required to actually try to feel into what's happening for them. That's hard, don't you think? I think it's hard. That's Buddhist practice. Now, it doesn't mean you get lost in their point of view, right? It means you're able to open up enough to have some clarity about what's happening over there so that you can base your response on some kind of knowledge that isn't just self-knowledge. It makes a difficult person a lot less difficult when you simply say to them, I get how hard this must be for you. I mean, honestly, that's all you have to do. It's just acknowledge. I get it. I get how hard this is for you. You could go ahead and do your refusal all you want after that because now they're actually listening to you because they have been met. They know they have somebody on the other side who at least is professing to get it. And then you can go and offer whatever it is you can. So this is how we deal with being okay with not taking what is not offered. The third precept is not engaging in sexual misconduct. And I would like to actually expand this. You know, to me, sexual misconduct has a lot to do with not holding your boundaries appropriately. So it doesn't just have to be about sex, frankly. It can be about intruding and impeding upon somebody's rights. And I'm sure you all have lots of things that are coming up in your mind right now about ways in which people's rights are being intruded upon. And so in order to practice not impeding upon other people's inalienable rights, which, by the way, we do have in this country. This is America. It's in our Constitution. We have to be able to embrace conduct that is characteristic of respect, tenderness, heedfulness. It has to be communicative and unselfish. So we have to be able to question, to actually allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to ask someone whether or not something we're saying or doing is actually harming in a way that it's going over or extending a sense of boundedness that we should be holding. It's very, very important to know how to be able to determine what is mine, what is yours, and not to go over and through boundaries. The last two are training in wise speech, and the Buddha was very, very clear about wise speech. Be honest, be clear, don't hedge. Be honest and clear, be fearless. If something has to be said, it's okay to say it. Be kind, and make sure what you say is of benefit. And then lastly, the last training is in non-intoxication. And of course, you know, in the suttas, it's 
don't ingest substances. But you know, the word in Pali, apamada, means sobriety. So that's clarity, sobriety. Non-intoxication is knowing things as they are. And it's also a sense of conscientiousness. So the way to practice this is by resting in the lucidity of awareness, which gives you the fearlessness to be steady and equanimous no matter how difficult the relating is, and to be altruistic both to yourself and to others. And in order to practice this conscientiousness along with non-harming, it's very important to be able to not use self-righteousness as a way, or anger as a way to hold your boundaries. It's very important to use wisdom as the way to hold your boundaries and to hold them. So as Buddhists, we are required to practice non-harming, right? As Buddhists, we are required to demand non-harming from the people that we are in relationship with. So when you practice the five precepts, it doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you don't have the capacity to stand up and say no. We have to be able to stand up and say no, because no is wise speech when you are in the presence of harming. Compassion does not include the permission to be harmed. That is not loving-kindness either. That is ignorance, delusion, avidya. So as you can tell, dharma in difficult relationships has everything to do with practicing wisdom and compassion the way the Buddha taught wisdom and compassion, not the watered-down way that wisdom and compassion are sometimes taught in the West. And because that is true, I am a big proponent of people actually reading the suttas, reading the teachings of the Buddha, reading the suttas from other Buddhist traditions, reading Nagarjuna, reading Jaya Tsongkhapa, reading the incredible Nyingma teachings in the Dzogchen tradition, the Mahamudra teachings in the Kagyu tradition. Read the teachings of the teachers. Read Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva because they're challenging for us. They are not watered-down Western Buddhism. They are a kind of Buddhism that require us to go beyond our comfort and really drop into the way things actually 